G'day and welcome back to the podcast. Today is Wednesday, 3rd of July, 1946. The weather forecast for Betty's hometown of Sydney is a fine, cool day and a cold night. Light to moderate west to southwesterly winds and slight seas. It's winter time in Sydney, but in Changxi province, the height of summer is upon bet. Today we'll hear from her as she writes to her godmother, Edith Thompson. We get a sense in today's letter that the torment and pain that Bet was feeling as she left Sydney is beginning to heal. But before we hear from Bet, we'll resume the story of Unra. Chapter 12. A Good Bargain. You'll recall that UNRWA was the U.S. quartermaster's best post-war customer. At the war's end, the administration purchased a substantial amount of the surplus food stocks stacked up around the world. It was a good bargain for everyone. UNRWA needed the food to ship immediately into areas of want. The quartermaster had on his hands huge quantities of food unsuitably packaged for the American market, which would have spoiled if left in hot, humid warehouses. And the men, women and children in the UNRWA countries received many highly nutritious items, ordinarily too expensive for relief feeding. UNRWA purchased other food supplies intended for fighting men from the United Kingdom, Canada and Australia, notably in the Balkan, North African and South Pacific stockpiles. All of these surplus army supplies, as well as the other UNRWA supplies, were plainly marked as to the country of their origin. Cans and packages and sacks of goods handed out for relief feeding and placed in rows in stores for sale were labelled not only with the country from which they came, but usually with the name of the firm that packed them, just as are the cans and packages and sacks that are sold in stores the world over. Chapter 13. No Widespread Epidemics After the First World War, one epidemic after another swept the broken countries of Europe. World War II made that First World War look like a backyard fistfight. An UNRWA medical officer, who arrived in Poland in the summer of 1945, took one long look and then wrote home. So this is Warsaw. I don't believe it. They couldn't tear up a place like this. Health and sanitation facilities are completely disrupted. There are no sheets. Patients lie in straw. Many doctors have no instruments at all. 27 babies out of every 100 die before they reach the age of one year. In some sections, 50 babies out of every 100 never celebrate their first birthday. A dozen potential epidemics simmered under the rubble of every bombed city. Millions of refugees were on the march. People everywhere were underfed and cold and dirty and easy prey to disease. Yet no runaway epidemics surged out across Europe and only one disease, cholera, reached epidemic proportions in the Far East before it was curbed. The achievement was the result of a happy triumvirate. The new methods developed by medical science between the wars 
and their bold and immediate use, first by the Allied armies in the villages and towns they liberated, and later, and on a widespread scale, by UNRWA in 13 of the world's most disorganised and devastated invaded lands. UNRWA's highly trained medical staff and its mountains of medical supplies together comprise the largest international health program the world has ever known. The health staff counselled, organised and assisted the governments. Only in the displaced person camps did UNRWA doctors and nurses diagnose, prescribe and give bedside care. In the invaded lands, their main business was to set prostrate health departments on their feet so there would be machinery in each country through which health measures could be launched. The most immediate and formidable epidemic threat in many of the liberated countries was louse-born typhus. In Europe, almost stripped of soap and the fats to make it, an uncontrolled blaze-up of typhus could have swept the continent. UNRWA imported DDT powder, a new type of dusting gun and a streamlined technique which made it unnecessary for the dusty to undress were all put to work. A single dusting required about two minutes and two ounces of powder, and the dusty was deloused for two weeks. Then it was repeated again. After World War I, typhus took thousands of lives in Central Europe. This time, it was stopped dead in its tracks. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes, but now it's time to hear from Bet. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changsi, 3rd of July, 1946. My dear Auntie Edith, I have two letters of yours here, which I have not yet acknowledged. One was waiting for me when I got back from my Nanking journey, about which you will have already heard, and the other I received last week while having my little rescuer in the hospital. I certainly do love to get my letters, and you are a very good correspondent. Home does not seem so far away when the letters arrive. Your first letter of those two was the one that Wendy brought up with her. The other was the air letter written on May 19. I have not seen Wendy yet, as she is still in Shanghai and, strangely enough, seems content to remain there. I've had a couple of letters from her and have suggested that she come up here for a couple of months. Shanghai is no good for anyone for any length of time. It sounds like old times to be hearing of Comm Week and police troubles with the procession. The same old routine and fuss every year and usually the same result. I see they have even, in the usual way, removed the brass plate from the front of the Supreme Court again. They've been doing it for years, and the plate is usually discovered the next week on one of the judges' tables. But it is fun, lots of fun. I'm sorry I did not think to leave my cap and gown out for Vic's use. Just another of those things that I did not have time to think of. But he seems to have been set up all right. I was thinking of Vic on his birthday. It is quite impossible to send cables from here. Not exactly impossible, except that at 25 shillings a word, 
it gets rather expensive. Rates continue to increase slowly but surely. But it appears that Mars carried out the thoughts that she knew I would have. Golly, but it is wonderful to have a family like mine to think of all those little things for me. Most of our mail goes through the British Fleet Mail, and it seems to be quite a satisfactory system. Up to present, it has all been free of charge. But now there is a charge on such letters as we want to go by airmail, equivalent of about one and six. These air letters go through the China Post Office and, I think, go via India or Singapore. I still don't know whether they are any quicker, but I intersperse them with the others. If the incoming mail here were regular, I would be much happier. Shanghai office holds our mail unnecessarily long, and so Australian letters are often a month or five weeks getting here. I was very pleased to get the Leica snap of our group in Martin Place. It was good of us all, don't you think? It is very good of you. So now that snap sits with all the rest of the family snaps on my table and gets a little good morning and good night whisper every day. Mrs. Souter often writes to me. I'm afraid she's missing my usual weekly letters. Somehow, I do not get time to write regularly to anyone other than the family. I'm sorry that Uncle Fred and his neuritis troubles back again. It must be very painful and a hindrance in lots of ways. Perhaps he should have some infrared. Jew always recommends it as the perfect remedy for such a thing. Since I'm feeling just full of beans at the moment, I feel especially sorry for anyone who's not tops. Talking of Jew, I'm glad she has fallen at last, and I'm especially glad it is Walter, because I like him very much, and it seems that all the rest of the family do too. And while on the subject of romance, in case you haven't heard, I have oodles of admirers up here, no competition, and have had four proposals of marriage already. But don't worry, I am well on my toes again and not likely to do anything rash. Nevertheless, there are many very nice men and women in this organisation, and we all have quite a happy life together. No special thrills as yet. Harry, the lad who left Sydney with me, is one of the very best, and we are particularly good pals. I hope to meet up with him again before long, because we can get around and have fun and see things together very happily. I find that a girl really has to have a male escort when delving into the quainter parts of towns and villages, and he is just the one for me. Tonight the whole staff here is dining in style as guests of the Governor of Changxi, General L.K. Wang, at the Provincial Government Building. The Governor recently issued a decree that all meals, especially banquets, had to be on austerity lines, and I'm very glad because it is Far too hot for 20-course meals these days. And that is what a banquet usually means. I hope he does not make up the deficiency by providing a surplus of Chinese wine. It is difficult to refuse without discourtesy, but I get very tired of the continuous drinking, which is always part of the banquet. Don't get worried, my dear godmother. Your little goddaughter can hold her own and has never yet been under the influence even for the sake of courtesy. 
I've probably already mentioned that the Chinese idea of true hospitality is to get all the guests thoroughly drunk. Tomorrow, we are all taking a holiday at the instigation of the surplus of Yanks in the office. It is their Independence Day, and as we have not recognised any of the public holidays yet, whether Chinese or any other nationality, we think it is time we gave ourselves a break. Many things have been planned, crackers and all, but we foreigners are at the mercy of the Yanks. The arrangements are in their hands entirely. Looks like a hectic party, though. I have not really given you much news again. That happened in my last letter to you, didn't it? But I just seem to keep chatting about home and such like once I get started. We'll have to end the story here, as two pages is the absolute limit for these letters. My very fondest love to all three, and an extra hug and kiss to you, my very own godmother. Bettykins. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune in this episode from 1946, That's Alright Mama, performed by Arthur Big Boy Crudoop, featuring Ransom Knolling on the string bass and Judge Riley playing drums. told me too The life you live in son now women be the death for you That's alright That's alright That's alright now mama Any way you do Yeah man Dee dee dee.
mama 